Hey, let's take our Bibles and turn together to the book of Titus. The book of Titus. Titus is the third in a series of books within the New Testament referred to as the pastoral epistles. We looked at the two prior pastoral epistles in the past two weeks, 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. The placement of Titus chronologically is between actually 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. There's some who feel that perhaps Titus and Timothy were written uh, closely together in terms of time. Not a lot of time would have passed between the writing of those two letters. I'm not sure there's a lot at stake in actual dating those letters, uh, but it, it does seem that Titus comes between 1 and 2 Timothy, most notably because of the way Paul addresses Timothy in 2 Timothy. He sees himself as approaching death. He says, the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have run a good race. I have finished my course and there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. He sees himself as approaching the end, in spite of the hope that he seems to hold on to, that he might be released from that imprisonment. He seems somewhat settled in his mind that he is approaching the time of his death. The agenda for the Apostle Paul in writing to Titus is very similar to that of First and Second Timothy. Timothy is left behind in Ephesus, to minister to a church established by the Apostle Paul and furthered by the ministry of those who came to faith under the Apostle Paul's leadership. Titus, on the other hand, is left behind in Crete to assemble a loose group of believers and to establish churches in the smaller towns and outposts in the region around the city of Crete. It's a city that doesn't have a sterling reputation. In fact, Paul cites one of the Greek poets in the book of Titus. Cretans are lazy gluttons and always liars, and he concurs with that assessment of the situation there in the city of Crete. Nevertheless, Titus is left behind to sort of establish the church. And what I mean by that is it seems that Paul passed through, that some came to faith, perhaps others were actively engaged in the proclamation of the gospel, and some from within that region were coming to faith in Christ. But the limited nature of Paul's time in Crete left him to leave, led him to leave Titus behind to pull these churches together and to establish some structure, organization, that they might continue as New Testament churches. That, that is the agenda, it seems, for the Apostle Paul, which is similar to what he's up to in Timothy, whereas there is a more established body. The same concerns exist with a, with a fledgling body or a new church. He wishes that Titus would establish leadership in those churches, and he provides explanation as to what that leadership ought to look like, what the qualifications for leadership in the church are, what the disqualifying factors might be in an individual's life. He celebrates the message of the gospel with Titus. We talked about that last week in 2 Timothy, how in spite of the fact that Paul knew, Timothy knew the gospel, he takes an extended moment to reinforce, to preach the gospel again to one who knew full well the gospel. He's writing essentially to pastors, and even writing to pastors, his focus continues to go back again and again and again to the message of the gospel. There's a lot of discussion in biblical study circles about when Paul might have done ministry in Crete. This is not a ministry that seems to appear in the book of Acts. The closest Paul gets to, the book of, to Crete in the book of Acts is in Acts 27. Remember when Paul is on that ship journey from Jerusalem all the way to Rome? He's appealed to Roman authorities. He's headed there for imprisonment. 
And the Bible says that, that they pulled into an area known as Fair Havens. That's in the general proximity of Crete, the island of Crete. And so perhaps some say it was during that time that Paul did ministry in that region. But Luke doesn't seem to indicate in the book of Acts that enough time would have passed during their time in Crete that Paul could have done any real ministry. It's far more likely that at the end of the book of Acts, where Luke is silent, Paul is released again from prison and is able to continue his ministry. That's the tradition of the church, and that's the position of most New Testament scholars. So we're post-book of Acts here, right? We're, we're in Acts 29 territory, the continuation of the advancement of the kingdom even beyond what we have record of in the New Testament, at least in Luke's account in the book of Acts. Paul continuing about ministry now in this region known as Crete. With that background in view, let's go, and we're going to walk through. We have just three chapters to deal with tonight, so we're going to be able to walk through a considerable amount of what Paul writes here under the inspiration of God's Holy Spirit. Look first at Paul's introduction in Titus 1 and verse number 1. He first identifies himself, who it is that Paul understands himself to be within the plan and providence of God, and his purpose here in this life. He says in verse 1, Paul, a slave of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to build up the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness and the hope of eternal life that God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. In his own time, he has revealed his message in the proclamation that I was entrusted with by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true son in our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Even in the introduction of the letter, Paul is revisiting the gospel. Paul is revisiting the message of Christ, his life, death, burial, and resurrection. Revisiting the resurrection of Christ, the gospel of Christ, because that is the authority upon which he speaks. It is Christ who saved him, Christ who has called him, Christ who has commissioned him, Christ who has assigned him to apostleship. He understands himself here first to be a slave of God. The older translations make reference to a servant of God, but the stronger language is used in more recent translations to, to emphasize here the nature of our servitude to God. It is not as though we are servants operating according to our own will. We are slaves under the lordship of the king of all kings and the lord of all lords. As he instructs, so we are to go. Paul regards himself first and foremost as a slave of God. And then refers to himself as an apostle. I find it tricky sometimes the way the language of apostleship is used. For instance, there is a sense in which being an apostle is limited to those who have witnessed with their eyes the resurrected Jesus Christ. Those 11 apostles called to faith under Jesus, and then there is apostleship assigned to an additional apostle to take the place of the traitor Judas. And the 13th apostle, one born out of due time, one called extraordinarily the apostle Paul who writes the very letter that is before us. When I see in most American contexts that Apostle so-and-so is supposed to be speaking, I know that I can anticipate a bunch of hogwash. I know that that can be the expectation. I, I can remember as a young minister, I was a student pastor in a church, and uh, the, the lady who was responsible for the janitorial services of our church came in and was telling me about her being a prophetess and her husband being an elder and their 11-year-old son being an apostle. 
And I knew then that we were not talking about the same thing, right? But there is a sense in which there is an apostolic ministry. Uh, and, And you see that in the Apostle Paul in some ways. You see that in Titus. In this example, Titus is not simply responsible for a single church, even the way Timothy may have been responsible for a single church, but with appointing leadership in all of these churches. There's a sense in which, and you will hear this language of apostleship, talked about more commonly within missionary circles. So stateside, when you hear apostle, you ought to raise an eyebrow and go, hmm. But when you hear that kind of language being used, specifically with missions personnel who are with us visiting in some capacity or while you're on the field, understand that something entirely different is being intended. We're not using the language of apostle in an official title capacity as much as we're using, as an, using it as a description of those who have been sent out under the authority of Christ for the advancement of the kingdom. And that's precisely the kind of ministry the Apostle Paul understands himself to be assigned to. He doesn't merely refer to himself as an apostle, but continues in this lengthy explanation as to the characteristic traits of that apostolic ministry. He says, I am an apostle of Jesus Christ to build up the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. This is the function of the apostle. In the hope of eternal life, they're building up their faith and building up their knowledge. They're establishing truth in their heart that leads to godliness in the hope of eternal life that God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. In his own time, he's revealed his message in the proclamation that I was entrusted with by the command of God our Savior. He understands who he is. He is a servant of God. He is an apostle of Jesus Christ, and he understands his purpose, his function in the world. He is to herald the message of the gospel far and wide. And I would encourage you this evening that there is a sense in which we all share in that identification and and that purpose. We all enjoy a, a level of apostolic ministry as the called out ones, as the sent out ones in the gospel of Christ. We are to go bearing the good news of the gospel. Our purpose, our function in life is to herald the message of the gospel. So I want to warn you again, and I think we've spoke to this a couple of times, spoken to this a couple of times in the last couple of weeks. The tendency is to read 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus as though these books are exclusive to those that hold the office of pastor. We refer to them as the pastoral epistles, and so we sometimes assume that their application is limited to those who are themselves pastors. But again, there is a sense in which we all enjoy the tremendous privilege of being sent out by Christ to herald the message of the gospel. Paul understands who he is, and he understands his function in the world. In a day and an age that seems so incredibly fixated on the idea of identity, I cannot stress to you enough how critically important it is for you to understand who you are in Christ and your purpose or function in this world. Our primary identity as followers of Christ are the people of Jesus. And our primary responsibility as the people of Christ is to proclaim the message of the gospel in all the earth. Paul turns 
in verse number five of our passage to the first key theme in the book of Titus and probably the thing for which Titus is most known. The appointment of elders in the churches around the city of of Crete. At least that's the way I understand the flow of verses five and following. Look to verse five. Paul says, the reason I left you in Crete was to set right what was left undone and as I directed you to appoint elders in every town. One who is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children not accused of wildness or rebellion. For an overseer, as God's administrator, must be blameless, not arrogant, not hot-tempered, not addicted to wine, not a bully, not greedy for money, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, righteous, holy, self-controlled, holding to the faithful message as taught, so that he will be able both to encourage with sound teaching and to refute those who contradict it. Now it turns in verses 10 and following to what you're not looking for, but let's look at what we are looking for first. Paul says, I left you behind in Crete in order to set things in order and to appoint elders in every church or in every town. The job of Titus is to pull this loose group of believers together and to begin the work of establishing churches, instructing them as to the responsibilities and obligations of a church, the practices of the church, the functions of the church. Perhaps he would have informed them as to the celebration of the Lord's table or the celebration of believers' baptism or corporate worship or the reading and application of the Scripture. There may have been a variety of things that Titus would have instructed the church in, but he seems to have a very immature, very young group of believers that he's assigned the task of pulling together and ultimately assigning leadership for those respective bodies. Leaves leaves him behind to set things in order, but most specifically, Paul says, to appoint elders in every church. It's interesting to me the evolution of this conversation of elders within Baptist life. Typically when that terminology is used, it can raise suspicions and questions and concerns and confusion in general. Even for me, and I'm not old, remember I'm not old, but even for me, in the span of my ministry, I can remember a time when the language of elder was scarcely used within Baptist life, and then that sort of experienced a resurgence. The interesting thing about that is that elder is synonymous with pastor, is synonymous with bishop. If you look at Acts chapter 19 and Paul's exchange with the Ephesian elders, he actually refers to them as bishops, pastors, and elders. He uses the the terminology behind those English words, episkopos for bishop and presbyteros for elder and poimen for pastor. He uses each of those three terms synonymously in that passage. He uses those terms for the same group of people. He's addressing one group and he refers to them by those three titles in the course of that explanation. Each of them referring to a different aspect of the pastor's life and ministry. The elder seems to be a way of making reference to the person established by character, established by reputation within the body, to some extent established within that community by virtue of experience and wisdom and time within that body. He is affirmed by reputation by that faith community. Bishop seems to be the title that makes actual reference to the position itself. Bishop is the office. Elder is 
the person, and pastor seems to be almost verb-like in its description. It describes the activities of the elder, the activities of the bishop. He is shepherding, he is leading, he's responsible for the protection and nourishment of souls of those who are under his care. But in, in, in our Christian subculture, the language of elder is the kind of thing that typically makes reference to, the, to a plurality of elders, to multiple pastors that are leading in a church context versus a single pastor kind of system. Well, really, it makes no difference whether you make reference to pastors or you make reference to, el to elders. The decision that ultimately needs to be make is made is what the New Testament model is. Is there a single pastor or are there multiple pastors who are charged with the oversight and the encouragement of the church? My specific position is that the New Testament describes a scenario in which multiple pastors are responsible for the well-being of the body. And I understand that within life and leadership and church structures, ultimately someone is going to be ultimately responsible for the well-being and care of the church. But the healthiest of situations are situations wherein there are multiple pastors charged with the spiritual nourishment and well-being of the body that is uh, under their watch care or under their shepherding, if you will. We function like that together here as a group. And I would encourage you, it is a good thing, even within your personal experience, to have peers about you who share in a level of understanding and share it in, in terms of values and heart and conviction and understanding of the Scripture that are able to speak into the circumstances of your life. Our, our structure is such that the buck tends to stop with me. But I will tell you that I will not make substantive decisions without the counsel of some who are even in this room. And unless I've talked to our, our other pastors and find affirmation in them, I'm going to be reluctant about making major decisions. Now, I think wisdom dictates that that's a good thing to do, right? So what Paul has assigned Titus to do is to assign men in every church, men plural, and elders is only ever mentioned in the plural in the New Testament with the exception of John 2 and 3 where the reference is a proper noun elder making reference to John the Apostle now as the established elder over those churches. Establish a leadership structure wherein there are multiple men who have the care and well-being of the body in view, who meet these qualifications, who are able to nourish the souls of those under their charge with the preaching of the gospel and the teaching of the scriptures. That's the assignment that Titus has received. Now Paul encourages and elaborates on that assignment in verses 6 and following. He describes for us what the elder ought to look like, or the pastor, or the bishop. He is to be one who is blameless. He is to be the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of wildness or rebellion. For an overseer, as God's administrator, must be blameless, not arrogant, not hot-tempered, not addicted to wine, not a bully, not greedy for money, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, righteous, holy, self-controlled, holding to the faithful message as taught, so that he'll be able both to encourage with sound teaching and to refute those who contradict it. The essence of what Paul describes is this. What you're looking for in the elder pastor bishop is someone who does not refute the content of his teaching by the conduct of his life. That is, in the simplest terms, what the Apostle Paul 
is teaching in this passage. Now, the sobering reality that I'm reminded of each time I read this passage and others like it, and each week as I prepare to preach the Word of God, is that every faithful preacher is going to out-preach his capacity for obedience. From time to time, I'll get asked about what is the most difficult thing about preaching, and it's not preparation, and it's not the presentation of the message. It's, It's doing what the sermons say do. And often, because God has a good sense of humor, He will afford me either the opportunity or the burden of living with that sermon in the days leading up to its preaching in some very real and practical ways. Like I think some weeks, even if I hadn't opened my Bible to the next passage, by Tuesday I could tell you what the topic of the text was simply by walking through those first two days of the week and the experiences of life. It is uncanny the way God will afford you opportunities to live out what he anticipates you being assigned to preach. I'm reminded week by week that I'm going to out-preach my ability for obedience. And so wisdom enters in and discernment enters in and the application of these qualifications and the assessment of those assigned to these responsibilities. But the clear call, what seems the essence of Paul's command here, his list of qualifications, is that the conduct of one's life doesn't in any way undermine the content of his teaching. In fact, He says as much in verse 9, holding the faithful messages taught so that he'll be able both to encourage with sound teaching and to refute those who contradict it. These are the qualifications for service in this capacity. Now, in case that weren't clear enough, and especially given the Cretan context, Paul says, let's talk for just a minute about the kind of man you're not looking for. Look at verse number 10. There are also many rebellious people full of empty talk and deception, especially those from Judaism. It's necessary to silence them. They overthrow whole households by teaching what they shouldn't in order to get money dishonestly. One of their very own prophets said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. So rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in faith and may not pay attention to Jewish myths and the commands of men who reject the truth. Over and over and over again in Paul's ministry, it seems that every city he finds for ministry, there is the problem of Judaism seeking to mix and mingle itself with the teachings of the gospel. So think for a moment about Paul's method. In every city that Paul lands in, he goes to the Jew first and then to the Greek. I think there's an active effort on the part of Paul to follow the methodology of Jesus. What did Jesus do? He went to the lost sheep of Israel first. In fact, he even limited the proclamation of the gospel to the Gentiles until the time it was appropriate, often warning them that they should be quiet about the message of the gospel or who he was. It's kind of a strange thing in the gospels. But there's a concerted effort in Jesus and his disciples to take the gospel to the Jews first and then go to the Gentiles. Paul seems to mimic that in his ministry. And it's a sensible method, not only because Jesus did it, but because there's a foundation upon which to build established in the minds of those assembled in the Jewish synagogue. If you've ever shared the gospel with a person from an entirely non-Christian culture, 
you know the challenges that that, that lack of foundation can present for you. It's a very different thing to start with a person explaining that there must be an answer for our sin, and that answer is provided by the death and resurrection of Jesus, than it is to start with, by the way, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Those are two very different starting places. So it's a reasonable thing. It's a practical method that Paul employs. Now, if you sort of flip that on its head, if you now have Gentile people who once had no theological foundation or framework for understanding the things of Judaism, but have now been introduced to these practices, born out of that old covenant Jewish experience, they're now right picking. They're now fertile soil to be, to be spoken to, to be addressed, to be sought out, to be proselytes to the Jews who for this long been on an island all by themselves insulated from the Gentile culture around them. They're now ripe picking. In the same way the Jews had a foundation for understanding the message of the gospel, these newly converted, formerly Gentile Christians now have a framework for understanding Judaism. And it seems that in every city the Apostle Paul does work in ministry, there is the coming behind him of Jewish influence seeking to beset these new Christians in their faith in Christ. Now what I'd say to you at this point, in fairness to Judaism, is that what they seek to teach Christians in these Gentile cities is not entirely consistent with the teaching of the Old Testament but it bears enough semblance of the truth of the Old Testament that many are enticed and truly beset in their faith by what Judaism says in those cities. Here again in Crete, in this obscure place, in this far-off island where no one would have ever imagined there might be Jewish influence, Judaism has made its way into the ears of these newly formed Christians and for some of them has been a real step back in their journey with Jesus Christ. The strange thing about the Jewish challenge to Christianity on the island of Crete is that it seems to be so mixed and mingled together with the absolute corruption of morals that was so prevalent on the island of Crete. He turns immediately from Judaism in verse 10 to how they're overthrowing households in verse 11 to a reference to the culture itself, a Gentile culture in verse 12. One of their very own prophets said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Paul appeals to the culture to say even they say of themselves that they're no good. This is how they make reference to themselves. They're always liars. They're evil beasts and they're lazy gluttons. This testimony is true, he says. Rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith and may not pay attention to Jewish myths and the commands of men who reject the truth. Help them to be so firmly established in the gospel that they will not be led astray by these Jewish fables or even Cretan-specific influence that would draw them away from the faith. And one of the mechanisms for establishing them firmly in the faith is the appointment of faithful men who will teach faithfully the message of the gospel day by day by day by day. In verse 15, Paul says, to the pure, everything is pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. 
In fact, both their mind and conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They're detestable, disobedient, and disqualified for any good work. This is the counter to what was described in the qualifications. Remember, the qualifications are about uh, having a man in that position who doesn't discredit the content of the sermon by the content or the conduct of his life. Those who are disqualified, Paul describes here as professing to know God, but denying him by their works. Again, as we observed in 1 Timothy, although doctrine, sound doctrine is a concern, sound doctrine in the way we might think, is a concern for one who leads in this capacity, there is greater emphasis on the character of the individual who holds the office than even the content of his message, as critically important as that is for us and as critically important as it was for the Apostle Paul. Character always comes first, and character always counts. We could use a good dose of remembrance when it comes to that principle in the American church. So in chapter 2, Paul shifts gears. He doesn't entirely uh, shift gears. There's a shifting of of topics here, but, but he stays in the vein of the right structure and order of the church. Only now Paul is moving away from the offices of the church, elder, pastor, bishop, now to those who function as members of the body. I'm fascinated by what is described here. A model is provided for us here that ought to be followed after more closely in more churches. Look for this as we read together these verses. Older men instructing younger men, older women instructing younger women. That's the model. This is how discipleship is to unfold. Now, when I say that this ought to be followed after more closely, more often, what I mean by that is I think the church has done itself a tremendous disservice over the past 50 years in organizing itself according to peer groups by age ranges. I don't learn a lot from people my age. I'd rather be with the old guys because they know something. As someone famously said, you don't get to be old being no fool. You can learn something from people who have been where you are, who have walked. Now, there is benefit to be had in sharing in peer groups and being with people who are at your same station in life. I would not suggest otherwise. But there ought to be leaning into the wisdom of those who've been with Jesus and been in life longer than you have. That's the model that Paul establishes for the churches in Crete. Listen to chapter 2 and verse 1. You must say the things that are consistent with sound teaching. Older men are to be level-headed, worthy of respect, sensible, and sound in faith, love, and endurance. That's what the older men are supposed to be like. That's who you ought to be at that stage in your life. And interestingly, Paul establishes the parameters for older men and older women in 1 Timothy chapter 5 at least older women, he defines older women. I didn't say this, by the way, so don't shoot the messenger. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. He defines older women as 60 and up, and so I would assume he would define older men as the same. This is what they are to be like. This is how they are to look, level-headed, respectable, sensible, sound in faith, love, and endurance. In verse 3, he says, in the same way, older women are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, 
not addicted to much wine. They're to teach what is good so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands and to love their children, to be self-controlled, pure, homemakers, kind, and submissive to their husbands so that God's message will not be slandered. Now, I'm going to tell you from personal experience, it creates a real void in the life of a young man or a young woman when there is not older men or women, as the case may be, investing in them in often very practical. And I don't just mean in terms of the gospel. I mean in everyday normal stuff. If there's not an older man walking alongside a young man, teaching him how to do life, he is going to struggle as an adult man. If there's not an older woman walking alongside, modeling for a young lady how to do life and walk with Jesus, she is going to struggle in the early part of her adulthood. These are just the facts. This, this is the absence of, the, of this kind of modeling is how we get to where we are in society. This is how we get to a place where we have men who become the biological fathers of children, but they cannot cope with the stresses of parenting, and they walk away and abandon the children God has entrusted to their care. This is how we get to a situation where we have mothers who, who in recent days, one of the big news stories plastered on all of the news sites, you get young mothers throwing infant children in garbage dumps. When you don't have a societal structure where older men are teaching young men how to be men and older women are teaching young women how to be women, how to love their husbands and to love their children. This is how you get to this place. We got, we got all these efforts and all this conversation. I could rant here for a minute, but I'm going to try to refrain from it. We'll pass from now to the time of my death a thousand pieces of legislation trying to right all of the ills in our society. But until the home is put back together and faithful men teach the next generation how to be faithful men and faithful women teach the next generation how to be faithful women, it's, 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 just, it's, it's just throwing tax dollars in the air, good money after bad, and it's never going to fix the problems that are approaching the place of insurmountable within our culture. And I, and I say this, I've said this before in the pulpit, and I want to encourage you again, if you are a young person, if you're younger than me, I'm 40 years old, if you're younger than me, and you have that fire in your gut that, that I have and began to have as a new follower of Christ, to, to want to do something with your life that makes a difference a thousand years from now. And I, I don't just mean in eternity, but I mean here. If you want to do something with your life that is memorable, if you want to be more than a footnote in history a hundred years from now, the single greatest thing that you can do is to marry the wife of your youth, love her for all of your days, have as many children or adopt as many children as God would allow you to have, as many as you can feed, as many as you can deal with, as many as you can travel, just have them all, and raise them to love Jesus with all of their heart and soul and strength and mind, and live out the last days of your life with your grandchildren at your feet, 
teaching them of the goodness of the grace of God. That's the way you leave a lasting legacy. Now, this model is good. And, and I want to I say, because I, I, I suspect that I'm probably speaking to some for whom that cannot be a reality for you now. There's already a cog that's missing. There's, there's something that's already out of sorts for you. There's, there's something about what was just described that has already, and in many cases, by no fault of your own, passed you by. One of the beautiful things about the gospel, I, I, was, I was looking at this verse today, Jesus from the cross, one of the seven things that Jesus says from the cross. He says, woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. And he gives the motherly care of John into the care of Mary, his mother, and, and, and the care of a son for a mother into the care of John. When we think about the gospel, you know what we often say? Jesus said the gospel will divide mother and father, father and son. It'll divide families. And yes, the gospel will. But the power of the gospel is such that even when family, in the, in the typical sense, is robbed of us, often of no fault of our own, God restores that in the most powerful of ways. Even if family eludes you as a single person or, 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 or a wife that struggled with infertility or a person who was divorced perhaps of no fault of your own or maybe a person who was divorced and it was all your fault or you've found yourself at a place in life where some of these things have passed you by by virtue of age. There is for us, because of the gospel, the family of God, that kind of family community afforded us in the context of the church. Isn't that a beautiful thing? Yes, Jesus said the gospel can divide families. Ain't no doubt about that. But oh, how the gospel can bind us together with bonds that are just as strong and even stronger than the bonds that tie families together. Even from the cross, Jesus is making a new family where there once was none. In the absence of his presence as a son, he affords Mary in that moment a son. And in the absence of any son to provide for her needs, he affords Mary the kind of protection he otherwise would have been there to provide. It really is a powerful moment from the cross of Christ. Older men instructing younger men, if you're an old head and you don't have some young men in your life that you're investing in, it doesn't have to be this formal thing. Just be a friend. Just have lunch. Go hunting. Go fishing. Play some golf. Do the things you enjoy to do. More is caught than is taught. It's the observation of a life well lived that best transforms the heart. If you're an older lady and you don't have that person or a younger person and you aspire to have that in your life, identify those who are worthy of emulation and establish a relationship with them. He says in verse 6, in the same way, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. In everything, in everything, make yourself an example of good works with integrity and dignity in your teaching. Your message is to be beyond reproach so that the opponent will be ashamed not having nothing bad to say about us. One of the things that verifies for me that Paul does not intend the application of Titus to be exclusive to the pastor or the apostle is the way he, he mixes and mingles the responsibility of younger men with his charge to Titus here. Did you catch that? He goes from speaking of 
the third person younger men to the second person you as he brings to a conclusion his exhortation for younger men. Titus here, a younger pastor, a younger servant, a younger minister. Listen again. In the same way, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. But by the time he gets to verse 8, he says, your message is to be sound beyond reproach so that the opponent will be ashamed, having nothing, to, nothing bad to say about us. Titus, your responsibility as a young man is that your message be beyond reproach. And universally, the responsibility of every young man in the gospel is to ensure that your message is beyond reproach, that you are faithfully proclaiming the message of the gospel. This is how disciples are made within the context of the church. We just have a few minutes left, so I want us to move to point four in the outline that's before you, the gospel for all people. The majority of what Paul says in the remainder of the book of Titus is focused exclusively on the gospel. Look to chapter 2 and verse number 11. Paul says here, For the grace of God has appeared with salvation for all people, instructing us to deny godlessness and worldly lust, and to live in a sensible, righteous, and godly way in the present age, while we wait for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession, eager to do good works. Remember where Titus serves. This is Crete. And Cretans are liars and lazy gluttons. Paul has affirmed the truthfulness of this testimony maybe Crete is the only city that Paul writes to that's worse than Corinth. There's a verb in the first century to, to act like a Corinthian was to participate in sexual immorality. And Crete was probably worse than that. In, in the Roman Empire, Crete's like Las Vegas or New Orleans or San Francisco. It's the sin city of the first century, right? And Paul says, into that context, I want you to understand that although we are not saved by our works, the power of the gospel is such that it transforms the way we live our lives. He bled and died to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession, eager to do his work. This is the gospel. Now, in chapter 3, he's dealing here with how we conduct ourselves toward those outside the body, but it's really an extension of the power of the gospel at work in us. Not only should the gospel transform the way we behave ourselves within the context of the church, the gospel should be the shaping factor in how we interact with the world around us. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to obey to be ready for every good work. Let me just say a word here about being submissive to rulers and authorities. We, we are shaming, our, and I speak of the church collectively in America, we are shaming ourselves with how we make reference to officials who have been placed in positions of authority by the providence of God. And we are losing ground and credibility in the public square to speak to moral issues 
because of the immoral nature of our conversation about those in positions of authority. Now, I'm not telling you you got to go vote for nobody. I'm not telling you you got to be happy with the outcomes of elections. I'm not telling you you got to be proud of the people who hold the offices. But I am telling you that as Christian folk, we have been called to respect those offices and to lift those in prayer who hold those offices, to pray for them and to submit ourselves to their authority. Now, I get that's unpopular, and, and maybe that doesn't get you fired up or send shivers up and down your spine. And if you just want me to be Judgment Day honest, there are times when I wrestle with the very same things. But God forbid we, we soil our reputation as the church of Jesus Christ by saying things that are unbecoming of unbelievers, let alone believers, and compromise our standing in generations to come because we're frustrated at the outcomes of certain elections. We really ought to pause and take some self-assessment with regards to these issues. I hear Christian folk saying things and saying slogans that represent things that ought not be said even by unbelievers, let alone be whispered in the context of the Christian church. Woe unto us. And I would remind you that the Apostle Paul is speaking in the Roman Empire. Now, you may believe yourself to have some knucklehead leadership, but it ain't got Roman Empire bad. And the Apostle Paul says, submit to them, honor the king, Pray for those who hold positions of authority over you. It just might be we've got just the leadership we deserve. Paul says, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to slander no one, to avoid fighting, to be kind, always showing gentleness to all people. For we too once were foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by various passions and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful, and detesting one another. There's a couple of things we're reminded of in those few verses. We're reminded of who we ought to be in Christ, but we're also reminded of who we used to be without Christ. We're reminded here not just of how we ought to conduct ourselves, but of the transforming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It, 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 does, it doesn't matter how bad you are or how bad you've been or the things that you've done or the sins that have characterized your life. The arm of our God has not been shortened that he cannot save. He alone has the power to radically transform the human heart and to make us something we once were not. Aren't you glad for that? And then he just says the gospel. Verse 4, he says, But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to His mercy. Through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit, He poured out this Spirit on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by His grace, we may become heirs with the hope of eternal life. This is how we are saved. By the washing of regeneration. By faith in Jesus Christ. Not of works that we have done, but of His finished work. We have been justified by His grace. You know, there's always this picture people talk in terms of 
what you'll say on the day of judgment when you stand before God? On what basis can you enter into God's kingdom? On what basis can you enter the gates of heaven? You, you need only whisper one name, and his name is Jesus. The only thing we have to commend us as a people to the holy God of heaven is his son, Jesus Christ. That's all we've got. It's just Jesus. It's just Jesus. Aren't you glad for him? Let's go to him in prayer. Father, thank you for your word and for its truth and for these moments to reflect on the goodness of the gospel and your instruction for the church. Thank you that you have loved us so well in the sending forth of your Son, the exact expression of your love for mankind. Come in the fullness of time without sin, the righteous requirement of the law fulfilled in him, his blood shed for us that your wrath might be satisfied against us raised again on the third day that we might enjoy the full benefits of eternal resurrection life. Thank you for Christ. Help us, God, as we go forth, to go forth in the boldness of his spirit, to go forth in the confidence of our hope firmly placed in him. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.